I want to begin tonight um, with reading a little bit from Second Peter chapter one. We're going to read uh, verses sixteen to twenty-one of that chapter. Second Peter one verses sixteen to twenty-one. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit." And we're uh, studying tonight uh, Article 3 of the Belgic Confession, Article 3, which I'll read also. We confess that this word of God was not sent nor delivered by the will of man, but that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, as the Apostle Peter says. And that afterwards God, from a special care which he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing. And he himself wrote with his own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. Last week, brothers and sisters in Christ, we talked about Article 2 of the Confession, which is really about the revelation of God to us. We saw that that revelation takes place in creation and in the Word. And now in Article 3, the Confession turns its attention to the Word of God and gives us, in the next five articles, then a discussion, a detailed discussion of the uh, teaching of the Scriptures with regard to themselves. So, this first article on the doctrine of Scripture has to do with the inspiration of the Scriptures. That will be our subject tonight, the inspiration of the Scriptures. The basic idea of that doctrine, of the inspiration of Scriptures, of course, is a very simple thing, that the Bible is not the word of men, but the word of God. As Peter says in uh, verse 21 of that first chapter, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, or as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that what they wrote was not their own word, but the word of God. But if you look again at that article in the Confession, you'll see that the 
Confession actually distinguishes two phases in this uh, inspiration of the scriptures. It first describes the speaking. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. And then the recording of the speech, the writing of it down, that afterwards God commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing. So it distinguishes those two phases, the speaking of the word of God and the writing of it down. And when we think about the scriptures as we have them today, we can see where this is true. For example, if you think about the prophets, then the prophets usually received the word of God directly from God. God spoke his word to the prophets and then told his prophets to go and speak that word to the people. And then sometime after, we don't really know when or sometimes even by whom, that word which had been spoken by the prophets was also written down in the scriptures. So we have the prophet Isaiah, for example, speaking the word of God to God's people of his own day, but then also writing down that word of God to make a permanent record of it, which we can use today, which God has, in fact, prepared for us today. So that's the process that the uh, confession is talking about. But if you think about it in relation to other books, then I think you will see that in other books, this process is not exactly what happened. For example, in the history of Genesis, we do not have, as far as we know, anyone first speaking the word of God as recorded in Genesis and then writing it down. Instead, we have God uh, inspiring the writing of that history directly. The same with regard to the letters of the Apostle Paul. He did not first speak or teach his letters, but he wrote them down. And those letters were the word of God to his people. So there was no speaking first and then writing afterwards, as there was in other cases. We see both methods here. But there's um, also, then, I think, certain other things that we need to note about this work of inspiration. For example, if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 12, you will see there that the Lord not only commanded Ezekiel to speak his word to his people, but also commanded him to do certain actions, to perform certain actions. Ezekiel 12 is just one example of this. There are many of, of the, these examples in the book of Ezekiel. But we have this here in chapter 12. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see, but does not hear and ears to to and but does not see and ears to hear but does not hear 
for they are a rebellious house. Now look what God says to him, Therefore, son of man, prepare your belongings for captivity, and go into captivity by day in their sight. You shall go from your place into captivity to another place in their sight. It may be that they will consider, though they are a rebellious house. By day you shall bring out your belongings in their sight as though going into captivity, and at evening you shall go in their sight like those who go into captivity. Dig through the wall in their sight and carry your belongings out through it. In their sight you shall bear them on your shoulders and carry them out at twilight. You shall cover your face so that you cannot see the ground, for I have made you a sign to the house of Israel. So I did as I was commanded. So it wasn't that God gave his word to Ezekiel, and then Ezekiel simply told the people what God had said to him, but God gave Ezekiel a command to do certain things, and Ezekiel did those things, and those things that Ezekiel did were the word of God to his people. They were an, a performed word of God, and uh, a visible word in the signs that he spoke. So we have God speaking to Ezekiel, Ezekiel performing these symbolic actions, and then um, some, at some point, these symbolic actions and the command of God recorded for us in the scriptures so that we know what Ezekiel did. This is the process of uh, inspiration as we see it here. So you have different perspectives on this. Another interesting perspective on this whole idea of inspiration is found in Daniel chapter 2 where we have the image, uh, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar about the great image that he saw, the image whose head was of gold and shoulders and chest of silver and so on. And uh, here we have God speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in a vision revealing his word then, not to Daniel, the prophet, but to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar either couldn't remember the dream or decided to put his wise men to the test by uh, asking them to tell him the dream. We don't, we're not sure which. But uh, finally this comes to Daniel. And Daniel goes to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, Here's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw, the vision that he saw, and here's the interpretation of it. And Daniel then takes that uh, word of God that he has received from God, and he goes to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you saw in your vision, and this is what it means. And then again, Daniel, it seems in a way that that's likely, Daniel recording all of that, for our benefit today. That's the whole process then of inspiration that we see in that particular case. So as we're thinking about this inspiration of the scriptures, we have to take into account these different ways in which God's word was spoken. Sometimes he spoke and it was directly recorded. Sometimes he uh, spoke and then it was spoken and recorded afterwards. Sometimes he, he revealed his word in visions and dreams, and sometimes those visions and dreams 
were interpreted, are interpreted for us in the scriptures. Other times we're expected to understand them without the direct scriptural interpretation. Sometimes he spoke through symbolic actions. And sometimes he interpreted those symbolic actions, and sometimes he did not. We're expected in those cases then to understand what those symbolic actions mean. So all of this is part of the inspiration. Without any of it, and let's be clear on that, without any of it affecting the idea that this is the word of God. He revealed it in different ways. It was recorded in different ways by different people at different times. But it is his word to his church, to his people, both in the Old and New Testaments. And that's that's the basic idea of inspiration. (coughs) But because this doctrine of the inspiration of the scriptures has come under attack. It has been necessary for the people of God to define this doctrine more precisely. And in the uh, more precise definition of the inspiration of the scriptures, we use especially three words. I've written them on the board here. Verbal, plenary, and inerrant. We talk about the verbal inspiration of the scriptures because we want to make clear that when God gave the scriptures, he didn't just tell the prophets and apostles in a general way what he wanted them to write and then um, leave it up to them to put it into their own words. But he gave them the very words that he wanted them to write down. It's a verbal inspiration. And this comes out in in various ways in the New Testament. But let's just look at one passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul is here in this verse quoting the promise to Abraham and Sarah. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. So the promise of God was to you and to your seed, I will be your God. And then Paul says, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. So Paul not only says that promise that's recorded in the Old Testament was the word of God, But he also says, I want you to pay attention to one particular word in that promise, the word seed. So it's that word, that word is the word of God, the word which God gave with the word which God spoke to Abraham, accurately recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. Not only do I want you to pay attention to that word, but I want you to pay attention to the number of that word. It's not a plural word. It's a singular word, he says. And to your seed. Not and to your seeds. And Paul says when God used that singular word, he was talking about Christ. And to your seed, who is Christ. So from that 
one word, Paul makes an argument that the apostle, or that God, in speaking his promise to Abraham, was talking about Christ himself from the singular form of that one word. He makes the argument. He, he views the form of the word as authoritative. It would be wrong to change it to seeds or to children, for example, to put it in the plural. It has to be singular because that's the way God spoke it. That's what we mean by verbal inspiration. Now by plenary inspiration, we mean that the whole of the scriptures is inspired. That is, that when God gave his word, the, the prophets and apostles recorded that word and only that word. They didn't add to it their own words. They wrote what God wanted them to write. And so everything that we have here in the scriptures is what God gave. It's not mixed up with the words of men. So that we have to carefully pick apart passages and say, well, this, this is really the Apostle Paul, not God writing. Or this is really... Um, Moses, not God. It's all what God gave. It's a, the full inspiration of the scriptures. The scriptures fully inspire. But let's be careful that we understand that that does not mean that every word that is recorded in the scriptures was therefore a word which had its origin in God. And you can see this if you look at 1 Kings 22, where we have the record of Ahab and Jehoshaphat making an alliance to go to war against the Syrians at Ramoth-Gilead. And Jehoshaphat wants to hear from a prophet, and Ahab calls his prophets, and the prophets come and they consult, and the prophets say, go up, the Lord has delivered these Syrians into your hand. That was a lie. That was not a word which those prophets had heard from God, which God had spoken to those prophets. That's not an inspired word. The words which Micaiah spoke to Ahab and Jehoshaphat, that was an inspired word. He was speaking what God had actually shown to him and spoken to him. But those prophets of Ahab were lying. And so what we have there is the lies of those prophets uh, accurately recorded by the inspiration of the Spirit in the Scriptures for, again, our instruction. But the words themselves are not inspired words. What we mean by plenary inspiration, then, is that what God wanted to include here is included. And there's nothing that men wanted to be included, but God did not want to be included in it. It is what God wanted. Period. Thirdly, we have the word inerrant or infallible. And what we mean by this is that as the 
uh, word of God was revealed to the prophets and apostles. God, of course, did not err. He is the God of truth. He does not err. And in recording that word, his prophets and apostles did not err either. They recorded accurately what God had given to them, spoken to them. Now about this, of course, we have to make a distinction between the original writings of the prophets and apostles and the copies and copies of copies of those writings that we have today. The original writings were the word of God as he gave it. But as those writings were copied by men over centuries and copied and recopied and so on, and even sometimes tampered with by men, errors crept into those manuscripts. And so we have various manuscripts which disagree in in places about the meaning of the text, about the literal words of the text. But this does not mean that anything significant is affected by those differences. Most of those differences, the 90, 95% of those differences are uh, irrelevant to the meaning of the text. And the few that have some effect on the meaning of the text do not affect any scriptural doctrine. So those three words then, when we talk about inspiration, the scriptures are verbally inspired. They are inspired in a plenary fashion. They are fully inspired. They are inerrantly or infallibly inspired. Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. And we know this, how? From the testimony of the scriptures themselves. So the scriptures bear testimony themselves to their own inspiration and infallibility and inerrancy. And that those scriptures, therefore, are God, since they are God's word, it is God bearing testimony to the inerrancy and infallibility of his own word telling us not only what he wants us to know, but telling us, as I tell you what I want you to know, I want you to understand that I am speaking to you, my word, through these writings, accurately, infallibly, so that you have my very word, not the word of men. We've already looked at 2 Peter 1, verse 21 in this regard. Holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter says in this, in this context, we saw the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we have the Word of God, the written Word of God confirmed. That was not the full revelation of God on the Mount. The written Word of God is what confirms that testimony, and that glory of Christ. We also understand from 2 Peter 3, these are very important passages, of course, in the doctrine of the inspiration of the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all Scripture is God-breathed. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished for every good work. All scripture is God-breathed. But there, there are many other ways in which we see this. The prophets, when they spoke, were speaking the word which God had given them. And then there was a written record made of that word which God had spoken. That's inspiration, right? God speaks his word to the prophet. The prophet turns around and speaks that word to the people. That word of the prophet is also recorded in the scriptures, all of it accurately, all of it under the inspiration of the Spirit. The apostles, in their writings, appealed to the Old Testament scriptures as authoritative. They quoted the Old Testament scriptures, and though sometimes they said Moses said or David said, other times they said God said or the Holy Spirit said. Over and over again you find this throughout the New Testament. They quote from the Old Testament wherever they quote, and they say these are the words of God or these are the words of the Spirit of God. And they use that, those quotations to establish the authority and truth of their own doctrine, their own teaching. They were saying, we appeal to those scriptures then because they are authoritative, because they are the word of God to us and to you. We see the inspiration of the scriptures also in fulfilled prophecies. One of my favorite passages in this regard is Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm that was written by David and it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's very well possible that David was speaking out of his own experience of forsakenness at the beginning of the psalm. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But David was also speaking prophetically. He was speaking of our Lord Jesus Christ, who fulfilled those words on the cross, when, in the agony of his suffering, under the curse and wrath of God, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in fact, of course, David goes on here to say things about suffering that, as far as we know, had nothing to do with him. He talks about how they pierced his hands and his feet. He talks about how they... Uh, divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. As far as we know, these things never, never happened to David. They happened to our Lord Jesus Christ. David was speaking prophetically of the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. How could he speak that way? How could he know these details about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ? Only by the inspiration of the Spirit. Only because God revealed that to him. Moses in the first chapter of Genesis tells us how God created. How did he know? 
It's possible that he used uh, oral tradition received from all the way down from Adam, perhaps. Perhaps Adam was the one who first talked about it. But how did Adam know? How did Adam know the order in which God created things? How did Adam know then that God created light on the first day, the firmament on the second day, dry land on the third day, and so on? Only because God revealed it. You see, God is revealing his word to his servants. And whichever servant it was, then passed that word on to others, and eventually that word was written down by Moses and was recorded by Moses accurately under the inspiration of the Spirit so that if there were any errors in the oral tradition, those errors were cleared out. And if there were any things in that oral tradition that God did not want to be recorded, they were not recorded, or any things absent from that oral tradition that uh, God wanted in his written word, they were added to the written word. God was working then in all these different ways, in all these different circumstances, to reveal his word to his people, to bring to fruition his intention of having a written word for the benefit of his people. So that's the basic idea. This is the word of God. This is what God gave to his people, to his church. It is his word, his revelation of himself to us. But the other thing that we want to look at here is that there is what we might call a human element in all of this. Now, don't get the idea that I want now to compromise what I've just been saying. It's the Word of God in its entirety. But there is a human element in this sense that God providentially worked in the circumstances of his people and in the circumstances of his prophets and apostles so that in all this providential work of God, the scriptures arose naturally. When Paul wrote his epistles, he didn't just take dictation from God about things he knew nothing about and cared less about. Paul was writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ to people whom he knew, to churches whom he knew about, to Uh, address real problems in the churches, to uh, talk to the people of God not only about those problems and about their needs, but also to express his love for them and his concern for the the errors that were showing up and his his anger sometimes and his rebukes to them for their, their faults. Paul was writing out of his own experience, his own knowledge. And he was writing in this way in order to convey to them as the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ the word of the Lord. That is, God so arranged the circumstances that of the churches of those days that Paul wrote what God wanted to be written for our 
benefit. He had a view not only to the church then, but also to the future. The Psalms are outpourings of the hearts of the psalmists, reflections on their own lives. When David says in Psalm 32, my bones grew old through my roaring all the day long, he's speaking of a real experience that he had. And when he said that you forgave the iniquity of my sin, he's speaking of a real experience that he had, the experience of forgiveness. But under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, so that he spoke the word of God. There's a very interesting example of the inspiration of the scriptures in 2 Kings 3, verses 11 to 15. 2 Kings 3, verses 11 to 15. Jehoshaphat and Jehoram, the king of Israel, again have formed an alliance, this time with the king of Edom, to go to war against the king of Moab. And they go out, these three nations go out uh, seven days and they don't have enough water for the army and they're afraid of perishing. That's verse 10. The king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord by him? And one of the servants says, Elisha's here or nearby. And so they go down to consult with Elisha. Verses 13 and following are then Elisha's words. So these three kings, the king of Israel, Jehoram, Jehoshaphat of Judah, and the king of Edom come to Elisha the prophet. And what does Elisha say? He says to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. Go consult with the prophets of Baal whom Ahab and Jezebel loved so much. Hear the word of the Lord from them. I don't want anything to do with you. And he indicates he's not going to speak the word of God. And then the king of Israel objects, and Elisha says, As the Lord of hosts lives, be Verse 14, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you. So he says, if you came alone to me, you would hear nothing from me. I would not speak to you the word of God. But since Jehoshaphat is here, I'll speak. But it seems we're... um, guessing a little bit here, I think, but it seems that Elisha was so upset by the presence of the king of Israel, and probably by the presence of the king of Edom as well, that he was in no frame of mind to receive the word of God. And so he says, bring me a musician, and the the musician plays, verses 15 and following, the musician plays, and Elisha's calmed by that playing of the musician, and the hand of the Lord comes on him, And he begins to speak the word of God. And he tells the kings of Israel and Judah and the king of Edom what they are to do and what the Lord is going to do. 
So he speaks the word of God. He has received inspiration. He uh, speaks that word then, that inspired word to the kings. And now we have in the scriptures an inspired record of all of that. That whole process of inspiration. God also used the personalities and styles of the different men who were his agents in recording the scriptures. So the Apostle Paul writes in a very logical fashion. You have lots of therefores and becauses and fors in the writings of the Apostle Paul. He's always reasoning logically. He's drawing conclusions and he's given, giving reasons and so on. That's not at all the kind of writing that you have with the Apostle John. John doesn't use fors and therefores and becauses very much. He tends to string things together with the word and. And you have the word and over and over again throughout the writings of the Apostle John. And John's vocabulary tends to be a very simple vocabulary, a very basic vocabulary, the kind of vocabulary you expect from a child, which doesn't have anything to do, by the way, with the profundity of his thought. You think about those first few verses of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very simple words. Words that a child can understand, and yet, if you try to plumb the depths of the theology of that first verse of the gospel, it will take you probably the rest of your life. And even then, you will probably say, I haven't gotten there. Or think of John, or James, rather. James writes in a very blunt and forceful style. He's not gentle. You adulterers and adulteresses, he says to the people of God. That's his style. And the point that I'm making, people of God, is that as God revealed his word to his people, he, he chose the, the persons, he prepared the persons through their education and through their personalities and through the styles of writing that they uh, learned to communicate that word in the most effective way, the way that he wanted it to be communicated to them. And all of that's part of his work of inspiration, you see. His work of inspiration goes far beyond just the recording of the scriptures, the written word. But God is working in the circumstances of his church and the lives of the apostles and prophets to bring all these different pieces together, to bring out of it the beauty and perfection of his own word. But let's look a little bit more at some of the varieties of inspiration. The Belgic Confession itself mentions in this third article that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger. Here you had no human agency. Moses brought him the tables of stone, the blank tables of stone, and God wrote with his own finger on the tables of stone the Ten Commandments. In fact, he did it twice because Moses destroyed the first two. We've talked a little bit about Genesis, but we can 
go into that a little bit more deeply here. Think of Joseph's dreams. God reveals something of the future to Joseph through those dreams, that his brothers and his father and mother will bow down to him. Joseph tells those dreams to his brothers and his father and mother, and they don't believe him. They think, how can that be? It's impossible. You must be boasting. And his brothers get very angry with him, in fact, and take their vengeance on him at a later date. But those were real revelations of God to Joseph that came to pass later in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. And we have the record, the inspired record of those dreams of Joseph in the scriptures. Or we have Jacob's blessing of his sons at the end of Genesis, Genesis 49. And these are not just the pious wishes of a father for his children, but these are Jacob's words spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the future of his sons and of the nation of Israel. Look at verses 7 and 8 as just an example of this. Jacob says of Simeon and Levi, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And you see it fulfilled 400-some years later when Levi has no specific inheritance in Israel but becomes the priestly tribe and has its cities scattered throughout the nation. They were divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. And Simeon has no inheritance of its own but is instead uh, receives its inheritance within the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. So that word was precisely fulfilled. In verse 8, he talks about Judah. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. He's speaking prophetically of the fact that Judah will be the royal tribe. Way down in Israel's history, when David finally comes to the throne. So Moses received all of this material that makes up the book of Genesis in different ways, but by the inspiration of the Spirit, recorded it all accurately for our instruction. But he knew none of it firsthand, did he? It all took place 400 or some years earlier than he. But then you come to the book of Exodus, and Moses is writing from his own personal experience. He's telling his own history. Some of it he wouldn't have known directly, of course, the very beginnings of it, but most of it's his own experience. The plagues in Egypt, the deliverance through the Red Sea, the time at Mount Sinai, the building of the tabernacle, some of the wanderings in the wilderness. Moses is writing from his personal experience, but as guided by the Holy Spirit to record the history accurately and as God wanted it to be recorded. You come to the book of Leviticus, and I think we have to say that here in Leviticus, Moses is pretty much acting as a scribe. God says to him, I'm going to give the nation of Israel my law, and I want you to record that law for them. So Moses sits down with his pen and his paper, and God speaks his law to him, and Moses writes the law down. So that he can give 
that law to the people of Israel. Or think about Job. We don't know who wrote Job. But at the very beginning of that book, we have things revealed to us that no man could have known about Satan's accusations made against Job in heaven. Job maybe never knew that Satan had made those accusations and that they were the occasion for his sufferings. What happened when those sufferings came was that Job said, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That was revealed, revealed to Job, maybe if he was the author, but maybe to someone else, whoever was the author, and recorded in that way. And then we have that long 35 chapters or more of the conversations between Job and his friends. Not all the words were right words. Not all the words were inspired words in the sense that the men, Job and his friends, spoke as moved by the Holy Spirit. Job sinned in his speech. His friends sinned in their speeches. But the scriptures give us an accurate presentation of that, those conversations, an inspired presentation of those conversations between Job and his friends. We have compilations, especially in Psalms and Proverbs. The Psalms were written, the earliest Psalms were written at the time of Moses. Moses was responsible at least for Psalm 90. And the last of the Psalms was written sometime after the captivity, returned from captivity in Babylon. A period of a thousand years or more. And in that period, all these Psalms inspired by the Holy Spirit, kept, preserved during that period, compiled at some point into a book, organized into five books within that book all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Or the book of Proverbs. We have Proverbs of Solomon. We have sayings of the wise. We have more sayings of the wise. We have sayings, uh, Proverbs of Solomon copied out by the men of Hezekiah hundreds of years after Solomon lived. We have the words of Agur and of King Lemuel, or of King Lemuel's mother. And all these words then compiled into one book. But all this taking place under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that what's included in the book is what God wanted to be included there. It is His Word to us, His church, today. And all under this whole variety of ways of inspiring the Word, all of it then remains the Word of God in all of its parts, his word to his church. And so as the confession says, we call these writings holy and divine scriptures. Divine because they have their origin in God. Holy because, exactly because the Holy One of Israel wrote them. And notice one more thing about the article. 
Afterwards, God, the article says, from a special care which he has for us and our salvation, commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles to commit his revealed word to writing. This whole process of inspiration then with his church today in mind. God putting it all down on paper so that we today can read it and can have the word of God before us. A reliable record of God's works in the past. A reliable record of God's words to his people. A reliable record of God's revelation. He wants us to be able to say of the Bible, this is his word. He doesn't want us then to say, well, what part of it is his word? How much of it is his word? Is every word in it his word? Are only some words in his word? Might some errors have crept into that word somehow because of the, the men who wrote out of their own experiences and so on? Is it possible that this word is really not in its entirety and in every uh, part of it God's word to us? He says to us, this is my word. I give it to you as my gift so that you may know me, so that you may be saved, so that you may have a foundation, a strong foundation for your faith every day, so that you have an authority to appeal to and can say against all contradictors, this is what God says. I believe it before I will believe anything else. May God bless his words.